Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Trevor Wood. Uh, he's a man with an interesting story who's managed to publish a very interesting story. He is a former naval officer, journalist, successful playwright, and he's just published a debut crime novel. It's called The Man on the Street. It's all about Jimmy, a homeless veteran suffering PTSD, who thinks he sees a murder, but no one believes him. Now, we talk about capturing the raw, gritty feel of sleeping on a city's streets, uh, but also making it authentic and showing the warmth in the community, too. Uh, We talk about him telling the story of one character and and properly getting into the voice, getting into the mind of Jimmy. Uh, And you can also hear about how much he thinks through what's happening next uh, and how to do that. He goes back to the best advice he was ever given. If I don't really know where the story's going next, I I think it must be really hard for the reader to have a clue, which hopefully I constantly surprise them. Um, And I, I mean, maybe I was inspired that Lee Child was our first visiting writer. And, and that's almost identical to his process. Uh, he starts with a blank page and just gets on with it. And he says, he says that he's a storyteller, and that if if he sat down and planned the story, when he got to the end of the plan, he wouldn't want to write it because he's already told the story, and he'd, he'd want to tell something else. And I kind of feel like that really. So I go where Jimmy takes me, and then we see where we end up. But but. I always know where I eventually want to drag him to, if you like. Stay there. More on the way with Trevor Wood in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello. Uh, My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for coming back. This is Writer's Routine. It's the show where we take a look at a day in the life of an author. All kinds of authors. And we find out how they get ideas. We see how they plan their day to maximise time and creativity and kind of efficiency in order to get the story down. Now, this week, it's Trevor Wood. Uh, And actually, Trevor sent an email to me uh, to get involved, which you can do too if you like. It's writersroutine.com. And I loved the idea for the book that he sent me. I loved the story as well behind it. So, so I wanted to chat to him. I wanted to share it with you. It's called The Man on the Street. It's in Newcastle, uh, which is a buzzing, vibrant city in the north of England. And how writing plays helped him do that. And especially how it helped him get into the mind of Jimmy uh, with the dialogue there. 
Now, it's been brilliantly received as well. Lee Child called it an instant classic. It got great reviews in the uh, in the Sunday Times and The Guardian as well. Uh, it's written in part to show some authenticity about the homeless community uh, because Trevor volunteers at, um, at a kitchen in Newcastle which provides meals for the homeless overnight. So the idea of the demonisation of, of homeless people really frustrates him. Uh, so we talk about that. You can also hear about the deal that he made with his partner to get his story told in a year. Uh, there's a lot about timing in there as well, about about the, the joy of perfect timing and how helpful that is in getting some success. <laughs> now, I'll be honest, I think I might be a little bit harsh on him uh, with his age. <laughs> Listening back to the edit, I didn't realise I was doing it during the chat, uh, but I, I, I'll be, I spend quite a lot of time uh, talking about why he has waited so long to write a book. So, Trevor, I apologise uh, for, for, for asking you all of that uh, when when we were when we did the interview. Um, but I think it is quite useful, actually, and I think he took it in, in moderate good spirits, so don't judge me too harsh, right? Uh, brilliant. Right, we get into it, as we always do, with Trevor Wood, and we start with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I, I sit in a small, yeah, what used to be a little bedroom, I guess, but has been turned into a study, which looks out onto the street. Um, so I am a hostage to fortune normally for all the postmen who see me sitting there and drop parcels off at my house um, every hour almost. Obviously not recently, but uh, so yeah, I look out onto a, a Newcastle city street, basically. T- tell me what's in the room with you then. So we've got the street in front, bring us into the room. I have uh, I have quite a large desk. Um, old kind of antique desk with a computer on it. Photo of my daughter who's in Canada at the moment. Uh, I have a bed sofa in there which gets used for guests and I have probably about 500 books scattered around the room on bookcases on um, on a, a chest of drawers at the back and on a, a small chest by the side of the desk as well. So surrounded by books and a notice board on my right hand side which I pin ideas to and any clippings that I see that interest me. Um, so yeah, it's proper writer's study, really. Is it just the books that provide you the inspiration, Trevor? Have you got Have you got any art around you? Anything else that's a little bit creative? I have. Um, I, I've co-written about a dozen plays, uh, and I have the the posters from those plays on the wall to my right hand side, which is always nice to see. Um, and I also have a, 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 a coffee mat with the the Pulp Fiction. Um, logo on it which kind of as a crime writer is an inspiration as well really no you said just uh co-writing plays but you've just released your debut crime novel and um in the emails that we were exchanging beforehand you uh you mentioned your age uh 61 was it and you said you, you've just released your debut crime novel can i ask what um uh not not aggressively it's just the only way to answer the, ask this question what's kind of taken so long for you to to get around to this part of things <laughs> <laughs> what kept you so long? Um, yeah, oh, it's a fair question. Um, well, I I was in the Navy for 16 years um, and, and creative writing wasn't really on my agenda, I guess. And when I left, I retrained as a journalist and went into um, journalism for about five or six years and then a bit of PR work. Uh, I was the head of communications for Newcastle City Council for a while. But one of the guys who was on the journalism course with me, uh, a guy called Ed Woff, had always wanted to get involved in creative writing and never really broken through. And he kept badgering me to suggest we wrote together. So early 2000s, we 
we decided to have a go and we sat down and wrote a play and four months later it was on in one of the local theatres with a professional cast uh, and we never looked back from there really. We wrote 12 or 13 plays between us. Can I ask you very quickly when, so this would have been what, 20 years ago or so? Uh, yeah, yeah, around that, yeah. So 20 years ago you would have been middle-aged. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember my dad when he was around 40 years old. I think if someone, if one of his mates had come to him and said, do you want to write a play? I'd imagine that they would have got fairly short shrift. Um, <laughs> what, what, what did you think at the time when, when uh, you know, another Geordie comes up and says, do you fancy writing a play? The, ti- the timing was quite good, um, really. I, I, I was getting a bit bored with my job at, um, at the city council. Uh, I'd kind of ended up there by accident almost. I, I went as a press officer there and people people above me kept leaving and I kept stepping up and ended up quite quickly as head of communications and it wasn't really what I wanted to do. But at the same time, my daughter, um, not only did I write a book late, I had children fairly late, so my daughter was just about to stop um, primary school and my wife had a busy full-time job as well and we were starting to think, how are we going to cope with the childcare here? She's finishing at 3 o'clock every day. Um, so... The moment was right for me to say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give up my job for a year, try and write a play, um, do all the childcare, do all the school runs, school picking up, look after the house, do the cooking. At the same time, I'll try and write a play. Um, uh, And so luckily my wife said, yeah, okay, let's give it a go because it will help me. I can concentrate on my work. So that's kind of partially it was the timing was very good. Uh, And we were very lucky. Our first play you know, nobody's first play is on within four months of them starting writing, but ours was. Uh, and our second play was a huge hit, um, not only around here, but all over the country and the world, really. So it kept us going for many years. Well, let me take you back there. And I know that we're here to talk about the day and to talk about the man on the street, but it's nice to build up some history. What What was the challenge at the time with it? Uh, you, 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 I mean, you may have creative bones and you've done journalism and you've done press work, but writing a play um, at 40 years old, I mean, I find that writing plays are something where you almost need to learn the form. You need to know the tricks of, of doing that. How challenging was it for you at the time? It, um, it almost felt like we, we were cheating, really. We, it, one of our inspirations, really, was we were big comedy fans, but mostly sitcoms on TV. Um, and we liked theatre, but we, but neither of us really went very much because there wasn't anything that appealed to us because all the comedy plays were really just retreads of, of old TV programmes or ancient things that were just being put out again. Nobody was writing anything new, uh, and, and that was the challenge for us, I, th- I think, really, to write a comedy play um, that was original, really, because we thought there was a market there because nobody else was doing it. Um, so I guess the biggest challenge was for us to be funny, but it helped with two people. I think you know all the all the old traditional sitcoms were all written by two people, and I think it's because you can bounce ideas off it, and and at least you know that one other person thinks that the the things you're writing are funny. So that helped a great deal. Um, and we just read quite a few um, plays. You know, you can buy lots of plays quite easily, uh, and we just read loads and loads and kind of absorbed everything we could. Um, and gave it a go. So we didn't do any training. We we did no courses. We did nothing. We just kind of helped ourselves through it, really. And and your and and the the debut crime novel now. I mean, I, I asked you why it's taken you so long, but it, it's it's been released as to some success. I mean, it's 
Nominated for the, the Crime Writers Association John Creasy Dagger Award, picked up by Val McDermott as one of the best crime books of the year. Now it has had such success and you have left it so long, if I may say. Are you a bit, oh, I should have got around to this earlier? I don't. I think, you know, everything happens at the right time, I think. Um, and it, it was the right time for me. I, I've always been a huge reader of crime fiction. Probably 90% of the books I read are crime fiction. And about five years ago, it was getting harder and harder to get plays on, despite the fact we've been relatively successful. Um, a lot of theatres are, are local authority funded and they were very short of money. Nobody wanted to take risk on new plays because it is a very expensive business putting a play on, especially if you've got a cast of four or five. All the money is spent up front in rehearsals uh, and in all the technical stuff. So it's a huge risk and, and theatres were less prepared to take them. So we were running out of avenues, really. Um, and Ed had some ideas for some small plays he wanted to write. And uh, we decided to, to to kind of not go our separate ways. I mean, we're still very good friends. It's not a Lennon and McCartney situation. Um, he, he he wanted to write some plays about some, some very local uh, heroes, if you like, um, from back in the day. So one about a, a famous rower, one about a musical artist. Uh, and as you can probably tell from my voice, I'm I'm not from Newcastle originally. Uh, and, and they weren't things that particularly interested me. So so I said, well, how about, I've always fancied having a go at writing a crime novel, so why don't I go away and try and do that? You do your plays, and then we'll see where we are in a couple of years' time. Um, and that was five years ago. His plays have done done very well, uh, and, and my crime novel is out there, so it worked for both of us, really. But but that's why it took me so long, really. The, the plays were in the way, and it, it was just the perfect time. I've always, right from the start, even even with the plays, I've always tried to treat it like a full-time job. Um, if I wanted to say I was a writer, I figured I had to be writing the, the whole time. So I, I try and sit down by 9 o'clock and I try and write until about 5 o'clock. I, I, I do take a break, so I'll take a break for lunch, obviously. And I do try and get some exercise in there somewhere. So I'll either go for a jog or go to the gym for an hour at some point. Not every day, but maybe three days a week because... You know, sitting on your backside in a chair five days a week um, is not really conducive to keeping fit in any way. So I do like to get a bit of exercise. But by and large, I, I treat it as a Monday to Friday job. So I work from nine o'clock till five o'clock, five days a week. I'm interested to see, because I've spoken to many authors now who uh, don't do that, who who have kind of figured out the best way to th- th- that their day works for them and they can crack out you know, 2,000 words by lunchtime. Uh, how have you found treating it as a regular job? Did it with the plays as well, but um, how, how does your energy kind of flow through the day? Do you, do you write in fits and spurts? Is, is it harder in the morning than the afternoon? Uh, I think it is harder in the morning sometimes. It depends where I am in the process with the book, really. I, I think if I'm in the kind of research planning it stage, it's not too bad. But once you start writing... There are moments, obviously, like every writer, where you sit down and there's just nothing happening. But I, I, I'm firmly of the belief of, of getting words on the page. I think you can always make them better. Though. So they might be terrible at the at the start, but get something down. You can all you can't edit a blank page, as somebody once said, um, and that's kind of my mantra as well, really. Even if I, I'm not really feeling that the muse is with me at that time, I'll I'll plow on, and I might only get 500 words you know, that day. Um, but I can craft those. And if they're 500 good words, it's been a good day, really. So I, I, I just keep going through through the 
the blank spells, if you like. Is there anything that helps you keep going when things really are proving tough, when the words won't come? Is there anything to, that you can do, like a bit of music, maybe a cup of coffee at a certain time that just unclogs things? <laughs> I, I drink so much coffee, you wouldn't believe it. Um, and, I, and I can't do music when I write because I'm a huge music fan, so I, I just get completely distracted. Um, uh, so jogging is my thing. If I'm really stuck, I go for a jog, and that's been amazing. I, I, I've, I've got my way through so many plot holes or so many just moments where I didn't know where I was going with the book just by going for a run, and I, and I don't wear headphones or anything, so I'm just thinking about the book the whole time. Uh, and I only run for about half an hour. I run about 5K. I'm lucky I live on the edge of one of the parks in Newcastle, so it's quite a beautiful spot along a river. Um, and I just think about the book the whole time, and it, it, it it's great for the writing, but also it makes me forget how much I hate jogging. Um, <laughs> so it works both ways for me. How do you know what you're going to sit down and write every day? Do, do you have a plan for what you're going to try and attack, or are you just picking up, seeing what happens? Yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely in the latter school. Uh, I, I, I barely plan at all. I, I, I always know a, a few points in the book that I'm kind of aiming for, I sometimes know the end, um, and I, I, I kind of have a couple of set pieces in mind sometimes that I'd, I'd like to get in somewhere, but mostly I, I am quite literally making it up as I go along and picking up from the last chapter and and moving on to the next one. Um, I, I quite like to re-edit what I wrote the day before. I, I like to go through what I wrote the day before, gets me back in the zone, doesn't take too long, uh, and sometimes I can clean that up a little bit. And it, it gets me into the rhythm as well, um, particularly of the voices, because I'm my my books are mostly about character, really, rather than plot. So I, I I have to make sure I get the voices right. So re revisiting what I wrote the day before is a, a useful way of doing that. How are you going about getting the voices right? I know this is quite um quite an open ended question, but airy fairy. Uh, so when you're writing about you know. Jimmy and you're writing about homeless people um people that that are suffering quite greatly uh, how are you making sure that that voice is accurate it's 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 very hard in some ways i i mean i i started with the my main character jimmy is a is a a veteran um uh serviceman who's uh suffering from ptsd as well uh, and when we first meet him in the man on the street he's sleeping in a park and and i wanted to deliberately hardly have him talk at all early on. He's kind of hiding from the world. So I think in the, in the first five or six chapters of The Man on the Street, he only says about six words, and I think three of them are to his dog. He, he, he doesn't speak much at all, and I wanted to kind of get over that idea that he's keeping himself away, he's not communicating. And then very, very slowly, he kind of starts to mix with the world again. Um, so so his his... His dialogue is very brief early on. It gets a little more adventurous later on, but he speaks in fairly short sentences quite a lot. He doesn't use any $10 words, as I, as I would call them. Um, and I try to stay quite disciplined with that. I, you know, I'm into, I've just finished the sequel now, One Way Street, and I'm starting a third book. And he, and he is coming out of his shell, you know, the, the further we go through his life. Um, but early on, he's very reticent to join in with anything or talk to anybody. Um, so I wanted to keep it like that, and I wanted to keep his speech very simple. When you get to five o'clock every day, uh, how good are you at 
switching off with your story you've spent a good eight hours doing it uh, are you good at just turning off yeah i'm pretty good i'm pretty good well I, also part of the deal of me doing this and working from home is that i'm the cook so my wife works until about six most days and then heads home and so i'll be preparing dinner by the time she gets there so i kind of lose myself in the kitchen a bit with some extravagant meals and that helps me a lot really so, yeah, I'm not bad at switching off. So, I mean, sometimes if you're at a nagging point in a story, it stays with you. Or if you've hit a hit a wall and you're not sure where the story is going next, it kind of chips away a little bit. But but I don't lose too much sleep, uh, and I, I manage to forget it in the evenings, I think. I also was kind of aware of the things I didn't know. So I even though I'd been writing plays for kind of 15 years, <coughs> um, I knew I had some gaps. And I, I went and did the um, the MA in crime writing at UEA, which was a part-time two-year MA, um, which helped me kind of fill those gaps in. Um, so that was very useful, really. That kind of gave me a lot of discipline, and that was where the book was developed. Um, so the, the Man on the Street was developed on the MA. I had to write an 80,000-word crime novel on that course, and that's where it came from. What did an MA in crime writing teach you? Oh, it was everything. It made me question every decision. It made, you know, the, what I was talking about earlier about the way I I captured the voice. It made me think very deeply about that. It made me think about how I told the story. Was I going to tell it from Jimmy's perspective? Was I going to bring in other voices? It made me think a great deal about the setting. The book's very firmly set in Newcastle, and a, and I tried very hard to bring it to life. It's almost like another character, and... And I'm delighted that, uh, that a lot of people have picked up on that, Val McDermott especially. Um, so it made me think kind of much more broadly than I might otherwise have done. I might have just sat down and tried to write the story without considering the way I was going to tell the story, if you like. So that was very useful. But also we had, I mean, we it was part-time, so it was only three residentials a year, so six residentials in all just for a few days. But at each one we had a visiting crime writer and our, our first visiting crime writer was Lee Child. Um, uh, our second one was Mark Billingham. We had Ian Rankin come and talk to us. So I was getting some in- incredible advice from, from brilliant people. So that really helped. Uh, and I did another writing course where the only other guy on the course was a retired detective chief inspector. So I had I had a police ally from right early on that I could question endlessly about correct routines and things, which was very useful. With these courses, are they teaching you a right from wrong? No, no, not at all. It's not prescriptive in that way. They're, they're, they're kind of just giving you options. They're, they're, they're just showing you the huge number of ways in which you can tell your story, the huge number of decisions to make about it. Whether you, you know, things like whether you write it in the present tense or the past tense and, and giving you examples about how that works and where it maybe doesn't work quite as well and why you might do it. So, so in my book, as an example, um, there are two timelines, really. We get Jimmy's current story where he's living on the streets uh, and he thinks he sees a murder and nobody believes him. But interspersed in that are very short chapters where we get his backstory, so we find out how he's ended up in this position. And I wrote the current story in the past tense and the and the previous backstory in the present tense because in my head, Jimmy's still living that he's still living in the past. He's still stuck in the moments that have kind of destroyed his life. Um, so he sees that almost as if it's now. So things like that, those are decisions I, I don't think I'd have even thought about if I hadn't done the course. 
one of the amazing things of the show, I think, is, is trying to pick apart why you've made those decisions. And that, that I really love that. What, why did you, what, why did you go back to to? Why did you go and do the MA? What, why is this not something that you could have self-taught? Well, I, I think, I think when I when I was, I, I did, I did start to write another. I did write a crime novel before I did the MA. Um, and, and as yet unpublished crime novel, which is on my computer. Uh, and it was good enough to get me an agent, um, but it didn't get picked up by publishers. Um, and I decided that maybe I needed to learn a bit more about the craft. And um, I knew I could write dialogue. I mean, plays obviously are 95% dialogue. So I knew my dialogue was fine. But there's a, in a 90,000-word novel, there's a lot more than dialogue, and I figured I needed help with the rest of it, really. So that's why I did it. And again, you know, I was talking about timing early, earlier, and it, it, it just came at the perfect time. UEA in Norwich is, is a very famous creative writing university, but this was the first ever specialist crime writing MA they'd done. That it, it's, it, we were in the inaugural course. Um, and it just came across my radar at the exact time that I was thinking, I need to make myself better. This first novel's not good enough. And I saw it, and it was, as I say, it was mostly from home, so three weekends a year in Norwich. I thought, I can do that. So the timing was perfect for me. Uh, and, and clearly it worked. I may be making connections where there are none here, and you were just at two separate points of your life. But earlier on, you mentioned that you, you retrained as a journalist. and. Uh-huh. And you've gone and you know you went back and did this MA. I've spoken to a few authors on the on the show who are who are people who are very keen to learn new things. Uh, where where does that come from for you? Do you think it is interesting, it, and it is it, it's a pattern of my life without question. Um, I, I do like to keep changing, you know, reinventing myself, if you like, and and I suspect. I was in the Navy for 16 years, which doesn't sound like I was re- reinventing myself much, but but there's a there's a very distinct pattern in the Navy where you move jobs on a very regular basis about every two to three years. So although I was in the Navy for 18 years, I probably did about six or seven completely different jobs in completely different places all over the country and, and on ships, obviously. And I think that that kind of became a pattern a bit that I... I need to keep changing and trying different things, you know. If, if I get bored, I always think, well, go and do something else. Uh, and, and that's continuing. Uh, I haven't got – I don't know how much longer I've got to change up again. So I think the crime writing might be my final punt, maybe. Um, but I've got, uh, you know, a two-book deal at the moment and hopefully more to come. So I can keep that going for a while. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We'll be back with more from Trevor Wood in just a sec. Now, he emailed me to tell me about his book. You can do that over at writersroutine.com. You can let me know anything on the contact page there. And you can support the show uh, over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. By pledging just a couple of dollars a month, it really helps us keep bringing you as many chats with some of the world's best authors that we can. Uh, by doing that, you get our thanks, you get our good vibes, our good thoughts, you get some merch as well. You've even got the chance to have your book sponsoring this show. We, we really appreciate it. We've done loads of work for this. We've got so many brilliant chats coming up as well with all sorts of different authors, horror writers, adventure writers, thriller writers. Um, I think we'll have a chat next week with Matt Haig as well. Very successful author. If you learn anything from those conversations that, that help the way you tell your stories, uh, if you'd like to say thanks to us for that, you can do that over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Trevor Wood talking about his debut, The Man on the Street. Uh, now, in this half, we chat about the, the city of Newcastle and how we brought that to life in all its different ways uh, with words. We also talk about the homeless community and setting a story in it. And we pick things up talking about the idea for the book, the idea for The Man on the Street. Where did it come from? I'd, I'd just started the course. I'd been to the first residential um, and they didn't expect us to have ideas at that point, but they wanted us to to go away and come back with an idea for the next time. So when I got home, I, I'd, I'd been reading quite a few kind of crime books that deal with social realism, writers like Denise Miner and Sarah Hillary, Eva Dolan. And, and because I'd been writing comedy for a while, I wanted to do something a bit more serious. And I was, I was, kind of trawling through various ideas. And I came across the stat that um, they think about 10% of the homeless community are ex-servicemen. And I thought, I, I was fascinated by the idea that somebody who'd once been a kind of disciplined, organized, very capable man or woman could end up in that situation. And I, I thought that would be an interesting thing to explore. But But putting it in the context of crime was more difficult. But then the idea about a homeless man seeing a murder and nobody believing him because he's an un unreliable witness. He's suffering from PTSD. He has hallucinations, and uh, and half the time he's stuck in nightmares. And when he wakes up, he doesn't really know what he's seen. So I thought the idea of of that character seeing a crime and then nobody believing him was an interesting place to start the book, and it went from there really. You have to turn that into a, into a full on plot. Now I know you've said that you don't really do that. What do you know about the story before you do sit down to type that very first sentence? It, it does vary a little, a little bit, but but with this one, really oddly, I, I knew I knew the start point, and I knew I, I had the last chapter in my head almost entirely, including the last line of the book. So it was a bit odd. This one, I think, I kind of knew where I wanted it to end. But that, that was more about Jimmy's personal journey than the actual crime plot, if you like. Um, so it always gave me a target. And I had a couple of scenes in my head that, that would work for me. 
but I knew it had to be linked up to his past really as well that it he was trying to kind of gain redemption if you like and redemptive stories are are always quite rewarding I think so that I kind of wanted him in some way to gain redemption for the things he'd done in the past quite often a writer will describe uh, the, the 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 journey of their story like a, a roadmap in that they know where it wants they know where they want to finish and uh, and as you have if you had the very last line all sewn up uh, yours you mentioned earlier on that you uh, you focus much more on the character rather than the plot um how forced was that then to to take jimmy down this road were there moments where he wanted to go elsewhere where he wanted to do something else was it kind of a chore to say no you're coming with me i know how you're going to end <laughs> No, he he drives the story. I once I, I don't know. I, I I find I inhabit the character so much that once he tells me he wants to go somewhere, that's where we go. So I I quite often, not being a planner, I quite often end up going to places I had no idea I was going to go anywhere near. I I suddenly write a chapter ending that takes the story in a completely different direction, um, and I really love that bit. I know some writers hate it. That I, I've got writer friends who write you know, 10,000 word outlines of the story they're about to set on the page, but I just can't do it that way yet. Uh, It feels fresh to me. If I, if I don't really know where the story is going next, I I think it must be really hard for the reader to have a clue, which hopefully I constantly surprise them. Um, And I'm, I I mean, maybe I was inspired that Lee Child was our first visiting writer and and that's almost identical to his process. Uh, He starts with a blank page and just gets on with it. And he says, he says that he's a storyteller and that if if he sat down and planned the story, when he got to the end of the plan, he wouldn't want to write it because he's already told the story and he'd, he'd want to tell something else. And I kind of feel like that, really. So I go where Jimmy takes me and then we see where we end up. But but I always know where I eventually want to drag him to, if you like. I spoke to Anne Cleves, who said the exact same thing. Why would I want to tell the story twice, in, in effect? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that. I I mean, I, I do friends send me their outlines to have a look at, and I, I'm full of admiration that they've got the stamina to sit down and do them and then write the story. But if I started going, oh, I'm going to write the chapter where this happens and then I'm going to do this, I think I'd get bored very, very quickly. Is there any ways that you stop yourself getting bored when you do feel that creep in? I mean, this is your debut, so it probably isn't happening then. Um, but, you know, we've already kind of charted your history and that you're, you're flighty and you're doing many different things. Were there anything in this where you had to keep yourself engaged when it was possibly quite tough? I, I don't think really, but I, 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 it's a bit odd with this, with the book and, and, and what's now a series, because when I wrote it, I, I completely envisaged it as a standalone novel. I, I, I'm right. I've said this many times. I, I, I'm writing a book that I hope is set in reality. And it's about a homeless man who sees a murder um, and gets involved in finding out what happened. And I didn't want him to keep doing that. I, d- I didn't want it to be like Midsummer Murders. I don't want him tripping over bodies in Newcastle for the next 20 years because it's not very realistic at all, and it kind of undermines the whole idea of the book. Um, but the publishers who, who liked the book were absolutely adamant that it was a series. So I kind of – I've got two other characters in the book, his two friends, um, Dino and Gadge, uh, who are quite prominent in book one, but it's entirely Jimmy's story. But I could see a way to make it a trilogy whereby in the second book, although it's still Jimmy's story in the main 
current events, we, we find out how Dino has ended up on the streets. And in book three, we will find out how Gadge ended up on the streets. So I, I was able to convince myself that it was a trilogy, but I'm kind of quite strongly resisting the idea that it will go on forever. So after book three, I, I'll be looking to do something else, I think. And saying that you, you, when you write, you focus way more on the character rather than the plot and, and charting Jimmy's story before you've really sat down. I mean, if you know, if you know the last line, you kind of know where his journey is going to take him. How did you, how did you sit there and, and twiddle your thumbs and, and, and think about the whole of th- this, this character's story? I, I did. So I, I guess I was slightly disingenuous when I say, said I didn't plan at all. I, I didn't plan the current crime story at all. Um, I just went uh, with where Jimmy took me. But I did sit down and roughly plan out his previous story, if you like, his life before we meet him at the start of the book. So I kind of had six or seven moments that would have affected him and uh made up his journey to end up living on the streets, really. Uh, so I, I had little kind of bullet points um, about his life. So he's, he's, when we first meet him back in the day, he was serving on a ship in the Falklands, uh, which was bombed, and that's where his PTSD starts. So I had moments like that that I knew I was going to include in the story. Um, and I can't. I don't think there's any other way to do that. I needed to know what had led to him living on the streets in the first place before I started, I think. This is going to sound, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe tough, but is it all, when, when you're writing Jimmy's backstory, is it all natural? Does it all follow on consequentially? Or with your, with your seven bullet points, are you writing them because you think, oh, that'll make good reading? You, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> I guess it's a bit of both. Uh, clearly, you know, all, all fiction writing is manip- manipulative to a certain extent. Um, and you know that clearly there'd be moments in his life that, that nothing terrible happened, so it, it kind of captures him at his lowest ebbs, I guess. But but it, it makes a sequential story, and, and all of the things were important to lead him to where he was at the time. So I, I don't want to throw in too many plot spoilers, but but we see you know what what happened in his personal life that that sent him down the wrong path. We see how he got involved in a fight. Um, not entirely his own fault, but that led him into another problem. Um, so they're, they're kind of, you know, the main points that have changed his journey from one of being a, a serving um, naval rating to ending up as a homeless veteran. Although I'm not from here, I've lived here um, getting on for 30 years now. So I, I like to think I do know the city pretty well. I live right in the centre. Um and for the book, I, I wandered around the city with the camera, mostly taking pictures of areas that, even though I thought I knew them quite well, there's always things that you don't notice as you're going around. Um, so I did a lot of that and spent a long time looking at the pictures. And I, and I was very lucky in, in part of my research. I um, I discovered a map that an artist had drawn up um, where he'd gone around and talked to people in the homeless community. So it was a map of Newcastle, but from the point of perspective, if you like, of, of the homeless. Um, so it was hand-drawn, but it had little notes on it going, don't go here because you might get beaten up. Uh, you can get free coffee here. It's quite warm here if you want to sleep here in the winter. It's not too bad. There's shelter. Just all kinds of things like that, which gave me a completely different view of the city than I would have had otherwise. And that was 
that almost became like a tool for me. I was constantly referring to it. When I was thinking of where I wanted to set a scene, I would be looking at the map and going, oh, what about there? That sounds brilliant. And then I would go and look at the place and, and have a trawl round. Um, I also started working at the People's Kitchen, which is a homeless charity in Newcastle, um, which feeds uh, up to 100 people every day. Uh, and I work there as a chef now, one afternoon a week. So I, I was able to kind of get a glimpse of that um, situation and talk to the people there as well. So I, I just did a lot of stuff to rediscover the city I'd been living in for 30 years, really. What about if you take that down to the the actual writing of the words, the description that you are using? Uh, you've, you've seen these photos and they've, they, they've made you realise a lot more about the city than possibly you remembered. Uh, but actually using descriptive words on the page, how, how did that go for you, trying to find a, a new way to describe this this city accurately? I, th- I tried to make it really energetic, if you like. I, I think it's a very busy, very vibrant city. Um, so there's always a lot going on. And, and Jim is an interesting character to see it from because it, – it's a busy city where where people are going out and having fun all over the time, all the time, and partying. Um, and he can't do that really; he hasn't got the resources to do it. But he's seeing it. He's sitting in the middle of the city centre, watching this world around him. So there's almost a kind of chaotic feel to it at times, where where there's so much going on around him, it's hard to concentrate. And he's also a, a man with PTSD, so he doesn't concentrate well at the best of times. Um, so so. That was certainly one way of of, um, of capturing it, I think. Um, and also, it's a very one of the things I loved about setting it here is is despite the fact that it's kind of considered quite a big city, it's really not. It's a very compact city. It's probably only about three or four miles across from one side to the other and north to south. So I liked that kind of um, idea that you can't really hide in this city Uh, there are times in the story where jimmy is trying to keep away from people who he knows are after him but it's very hard it's it's a tiny city where everybody knows everybody um i i i don't mention it in the book i think but possibly in the acknowledgements that there's only about one degree of separation here everybody knows somebody who knows somebody there's hardly any strangers so i wanted that kind of claustrophobic feel to it as well where he's always bumping into people he knows or seeing people he knows and in some cities, that might be a coincidence. I don't think you could get away with it in London. But in Newcastle, everybody who lives here certainly would believe that because you never go out and and, and don't see people you know. It, it's such a small community. And another community that you've been uh, praised for portraying accurately uh, is, the, is the homeless community. I mean, uh, you, you said yourself you wanted to, to write a, a humanising portrayal of them. Uh, how do you start with that? I mean, when, when most representations of, of homeless people are, are rather dehumanising, how do you go in there with a fresh perspective and, and show the truth? Well, I wanted, as I say, I, I have been working in the, in the community, you know, only as a volunteer, so, so uh, not 24-7 by any means. But that helped just speaking to people. But but primarily, I think it's important to remember that, that, you know, none of these people wanted to be homeless. They didn't grow up thinking, oh, I really, that would be a great future for me, just living on the streets. They, they've got there by a, a combination of, of bad luck, you know, bad choices, um, you know, losing their jobs at the wrong time, their relationship breaking up. They're, they're all human beings who had aspirations to, to do more 
than they've done. And I, I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture it that they're, they're not necessarily even lost souls. They, there's still redemption to be found. And they, you know, most of them still want to be good people and do good things. And I wanted to capture that with Jimmy. And I also wanted to capture some of the humor as well. It's like any community, you know, they survive the dark stuff with, with fairly black humor. So I deliberately gave him a friend who is kind of, you know, the the humor in the book, really. So I, I bring Gadge into it whenever I think this has gone way too dark. I, I bring his friend in to, to just lighten things a little bit because it's not all misery. If if you go to any of the – we have a Christmas party on the street where, where we provide tons of food and music and all kinds of things. And if you talk to the, the guys and the, the women there, there's still humor. They're still finding some joy in life and i wanted to capture that as well one of the things i've learned through doing this is you're you're clearly a writer and a person who who likes to study who likes to analyze the way you do things and make things better what did writing your debut novel teach you about the way that you tell stories that has changed the the follow-up stories that you're writing um i think it primarily it taught me not to panic it's i mean it's a huge undertaking i I think the man on the street comes in at about 93,000 words and uh, at the end and and the plays I was writing uh, with Ed a, a play comes in at about 20,000 words and there were two of us writing those so you could argue I only wrote 10,000 of them so it taught me to be very patient and and not to panic because the the my first version of the man on the street went out to publishers and uh, it didn't get picked up there was one publisher who was very keen on it, uh, but he couldn't get it through uh, um, what they call an acquisitions meeting. Editors have to convince people within their publishing um, arm to also buy the book, like the sales and marketing people, and, and that. And this guy couldn't persuade his colleagues, but he asked me if I would rewrite quite a huge chunk of it, and then he thought he could get it through the system. Um, and I went away and took about three months to rewrite it. Uh, and it went back to him, and he still couldn't get it through the system. So I was I was left in limbo a bit, but my agent fortunately still believed in it. And he sent the new book out to publishers, and I got three offers very quickly. So it kind of taught me that, you know, keep patient. Even when you think you've hit a dead end, go back, have a look at it, rewrite it. There's a lot of words there. It's There's a lot that you can improve each time. Um, so I'm a much more patient writer than I than I was before. I think because you've kind of got to be. It's probably I know some people churn these books out to a year, but I couldn't do that. I think I, it takes me a good nine months to write this this length of a book. Um, so I'm I'm a patient, a much more patient guy than I used to be. And that is it for this week's writer's routine. Thanks to Trevor Wood for getting in touch for coming on the show. Uh, you can grab a copy of The Man on the Street by using the link that is in the episode notes and over at writersroutine.com. Now, next week, we are chatting to uh, Matt Haig all about his brand new book, The Midnight Library. I've actually just finished the chat. It, it was a brilliant talk. Uh, we ran quite long with it as well. Uh, so, And there are some amazing tips and hints uh, for your storytelling uh, so make sure you subscribe so it automatically downloads this time next week uh, when we chat to matt haig uh, in the meantime 
Uh, support us if you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can get in touch with the show over at writersroutine.com. Uh, and if you do have a spare minute, I would love you to uh, leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Just let other people know how much you're enjoying the show if you are. Uh, and I'll see you next week with Matt Haig on Writers Routine. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.